0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul and I will be your host for today's episode. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Ben Braffman, a criminal defense lawyer in New York City. Ben is a fellow at American College. He has been practicing law for almost 50 years. He has defended many, many high profile clients and not high profile clients, spending a lot of time in the courtrooms in New York. He is uh, well-known for his work on behalf of lots of high-profile folks, Dinesh D'Souza, Martin Shrekkel, Harvey Weinstein, Puff Diddy, you name it. He has defended a wide range of people. He is uh, very well-respected. And Ben, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Where I would love to start with is, in this season of your life, it seems like you're still practicing law actively.
1: Yes, I am. And, you know, uh, it was an interesting couple of years in New York for both personal and professional reasons. Uh, For a couple of years as a practical matter, the courts were pretty much uh, shut down, at least to my clients. A lot of people who were remanded now get preference. I haven't actually had a jury trial in almost two years. We have one starting in January and one shortly thereafter. So I think we're about to pick up again, but it's been an interesting couple of years. What can I tell you? Do you miss the courtroom? Yes and no. You know, to be honest with you, I think people who have not tried cases as often as I have do not understand the tension, the really hard work. Often when I, you know, lecture law students, I start by telling them there are no shortcuts. You know, you really have to put in the time and the effort. And, uh, you know, when you're on trial, as I think you may know, and others who listen to this will confirm, it's not a nine to five job, It's uh, you know, 18 hour days and there's no rest. And, you know, even when the jury is out, it's uh, no attention filled time. And I think if you really care about the people you're representing, regardless of what they're charged with. It's a pretty intense time to be on trial. You know, I do a lot of keynote speaking engagements and master of ceremony jobs. And I remember um, I did a couple of dinners for the Israel Cancer Research Fund, which, you know, cutting edge research. And I gave an award to maybe one of the most prominent oncologists in the world. And, you know, when I gave him the award, we sat down, we were seated next to each other. And he turned to me and he said, you know, I've often thought about I'd really like to meet Ben Brafman. And I said, uh, why? You're a scientist and I'm a criminal defense lawyer. And he said, well, you know, as I see it, no one's ever happy to meet me and no one's ever happy to meet you. And I looked at him and I said, that's an interesting observation. Let me tell you the difference. When you lose, uh, often the patient dies. If I lose, I get letters for the next 20 years. So you know, it was uh, an interesting moment and something I often talk about because, you know, what we do, there is no real science involved. I mean, there are no blood tests or EKGs or CAT scans. It's, you know, me and my team reviewing of discovery material and then it's a lot of preparation. And however your talent and experience, you know, led you into this uh, you know, rarefied atmosphere. But man, is it a tension-filled moment? There are no scripts. You're working on a revolving uh, stage where everything you say, if it's a high-profile case, you know, every pundit in the world will second-guess everything you do. And if it's not a high-profile case, you know, every member of the family will uh, second-guess you. When you win, you're a hero. And when you lose, it's often, you know, your fault. So it's a hard life. Yeah, it
0: is not without serious tax on the people that choose to engage. How have you both from a, a mental health perspective and physically, I understand you work out with a trainer 3 days a week. Has it always been that way?
1: Well, it hasn't always been that way. It's been that way for the last 8 years and the last couple of years I've, you know, I've lost 20 pounds. As I get older, I find that workouts are more important and, you know, I had a 45-minute workout this morning. And, you know, when it starts, I'm not certain I will finish. And when it's over, I'm really glad the guy uh, showed up. But I found as I get older, if I didn't have a trainer, I think I would just not work out. It requires a great deal of a discipline and the trainer helps me uh, maintain it. So it hasn't always been that way, but... I've always done some kind of physical exercise. I actually ran the New York Marathon once and finished. But, you know, that race took its toll on my uh, legs, my ankles, my knees. You know, today, if I run a mile, I get shooting pain. So, you know, I find working out with the trainer is easier. What can I tell you? I'd like to shift topics to talk about the hardest that
0: I've gone through and really kind of track what the learning lessons
1: you personally had from that experience. Well, about two and a half years ago, I was walking up the steps in my home to the you know second floor. I was carrying a you know cup of iced tea. I was you know walking up the steps. I got to a landing, which is about I don't know, 12 or 15 feet off the floor below, and I started to lose my balance. I grabbed the handrail and I grabbed it so hard that it basically flipped me over. And that's all I remember. You know, I landed on my head on a marble floor and, uh, you know, my head split open. My wife was home. She found me. She said I looked like one of the crime scene photos with, you know, blood pooling all around me. She immediately called a private ambulance service in my town and they were in the house. She tells me in like a minute because one of the volunteer guys lives around the corner. They tried very hard to patch me up. And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm in the ICU at one of the major hospitals near my home. I look around and I'm sort of curtained off from everybody else in the ICU. And, you know, it occurs to me when I wake up that I'm the only patient here with a traumatic brain injury and everybody else is there because of COVID. You know, they kept coding all night. I mean, they were dying because it was at the beginning of the pandemic and people were basically just dying. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I survived this fall and I'm going to die of COVID. And you know, my wife told me later, she kept calling the hospital. They wouldn't let her in because of the COVID restrictions. And when they called her, they also didn't have any record of me being in the hospital. And at one point, the person who answered the phone became so annoyed at her he said, look, we don't have a Ben Brathman here, but why don't you check the morgue? That's all she had to hear. And in any event, I survived and I survived, to be honest with you, without any uh, handicap. And, you know, that too was another concern because, you know, very often with a head injury, you know, you either end up as a paraplegic or you can't walk, you can't speak. And I think, you know, I was very lucky. I think God smiled on me. And if it wasn't for it happening at the height of COVID, I think I would have no more practice But at the time, all the courts were closed, so nobody missed me. You know, I went through, you know, a short period of physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy. But I think when you listen to me today, I think you conclude, hopefully, that I haven't really lost the step. You know, I'm back to working out with a trainer and I feel a lot better. But at the end of the day... You know, it was a very, very important moment. Obviously, I'd like to have avoided the experience. But the one thing it did uh, teach me is, um, you know, you never know when your day comes. And it's really good to take note of the people who are important around you and let them know every day how much they mean to you. I've maintained my practice. I've kept my staff. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I'm back to doing what I'm doing. And not a day goes by where I really don't thank God for not letting me, A, die, or B ending up as a vegetable, God forbid. You know, I have friends who fell off the curb and ended up dead. And I went down, you know, an entire fall landing on my head and, you know, it actually broke open, but I'm fine. And I, you know, I don't speak about it often, but on occasion when I do, it's really to impress upon the people who I'm speaking to that, you know, every once in a while life throws you a curveball. And I think you need to learn from it. And I really have. So I'm back. I'm here. I'm very grateful for everything that happened and the way I've healed from the process. But I think for the rest of my life, when people in my town, for example, see me online in the bagel store, the first thing they ask me is, how are you feeling? And I said to my wife, this is going to go on for the rest of my life. Whereas before that, no one ever started a conversation that way. So um, I'm feeling great for the people who are listening. And it's taught me a lot.
0: How does Ben Brathman rest and recharge after an intense trial?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting in the early and late 80s and early 90s. I mean, I was always on trial. I mean, you don't develop a reputation in this city, at least when you're occasionally on trial. I mean, there was a time when in the Eastern District, for example, I had 11 trials in a row. And, it, you know, in 18 months, I did 11 trials back to back to back. Some of them, I think most of them were pretty high profile. And I began winning a lot of trials and whether it was, you know, hard work or intense preparation or occasionally where the government really overcharged a case, you know, I won a lot of them. And people began to take notice. But, you know, if you've been on trial uh, for 18 months back to back, it really takes its toll. So how do I relax? You know, I'm not certain I really relax. I, you know, observe the Sabbath. And I think if it wasn't for that, I think I'd be dead, to be honest with you. I've often said that. And, you know, having a, you know, a wife who is a retired librarian trying her best to, you know, not get involved in my practice. I mean, she really has given me the kind of space I think a trial lawyer needs. So I give her a lot of credit.
0: Yeah. Well, 50 plus years. Congratulations. Thank you.
1: This Sabbath, if I can uh, follow up on that, how long have you been keeping the Sabbath? my whole life. You know, I was raised in a home where it was important. And then as I, you know, got older, I realized that it was important, not just to my parents who are no longer alive, but to my children. But more importantly, you know, my mother's uh, parents were murdered in Auschwitz. And, you know, to the extent that they gave their life for, you know, being observant Jews, um, it wasn't a lot to ask of me to just have a day where I just recharge and I uh, spend a lot of time with my kids and my family. And it's, not the hardest thing in the world to shut down for 24 hours in fact it's good for me even
0: when you were in the you know back to back to back to back to back trials still kept sabbath
1: yeah i did you know it doesn't mean i don't you know read and you know i get a lot of my trial reading done which you know may not be appropriate but that's a concession i've made So, um, you know, yeah, I get, you know, a lot of prep work done, you know, just reading. And I think, you know, a lot of my cases require a sort of consuming, you know, just a wealth of information. And I've often said that if you really want to be a good cross examiner, you really have to know everything about the case and know everything in a way that allows you to jump from subject to subject, assuming the answer you get is not the one uh, you were expecting. And I think in order to be a good cross-examiner, you need to have a grasp, and I mean a total grasp, of the material that you've been given and the investigation that you've done. And, you know, it's uh, served me uh, well. So, you know, I've had jury deliberations extend into the Sabbath. And, you know, there were a couple of times where I, you know, stayed in a hotel and actually showed up in court on the Sabbath because in a multiple defendant case, you know, it was not possible to be honest with you, to have a trial stop during you know intense uh, jury deliberations, and uh, you know, it just happened a couple of times in the 45-year uh, career. But you know, I managed to not really uh, violate the Sabbath in many ways because I you know I didn't travel because I was able to walk to court. You know, not a lot to do when you're waiting for a jury other than respond to an occasional question. And, you know, I've had the obligations to clients in emergencies where I've just made a judgment call. And, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm not the most religious person in the world, and I deal with it when I have to.
0: From uh, listening to uh, some other interviews of you, my sense is that your interest in learning religion has increased as you've gotten older. Is, Is that accurate or off?
1: I think it's accurate. You know, I think I've matured. I think I was a little bit of a, uh, you know, not a rebel, but a little bit of a, I hate to use the word wise-ass, but, you know, when I was growing up and, you know, I went to a very religious school and, you know, some of the people who taught there were uh, themselves Holocaust survivors. And, you know, their position was, if you didn't know what you were doing or pay uh, attention, you know, they didn't treat you really well. So... You know, it is what it is, and it didn't really shape me, but I didn't get involved in really studying any parts of religion until a couple of years ago. And, you know, I have a son who's a rabbi, I had a brother who was a rabbi, and, you know, I'll never be a rabbi, but I have found that some of the issues you deal with in the Talmud are uh, sort of like a trial issue. You know, it's not really a rule book. You see if you can persuade the court or the other side. And it's the same in studying the Talmud. It's not a rule book. There are arguments. Sometimes I get a kick out of them. Sometimes I don't understand them. You know, and I teach myself, you know, Arts scroll has, you know, the entire Talmud translated into English. So it's not like I need to go back to the Aramaic language and try to understand it. So I'm getting as much as I can under my belt and I'm pleased with it. It
0: seems like, you know, your parents being Holocaust survivors, your brother, who it seems like was a very influential rabbi, those would be shaping influences. What has been the most driving influence in kind of shaping how you see the world?
1: Well, you know, I I grew up very angry at the fact that, you know, my grandparents were murdered simply because they were Jews. I never understood that until I got older and understood what real evil is about. I mean, you know, we see it every day. Last night, there was a shooting of, you know, six people in a Walmart. The night before, it was, you know, a murder of half a dozen people in a gay bar in Colorado. And, you know, we've seen horrific acts of evil and violence in the last 10, 15, 20 years in the United States. You know, I have a son and grandchildren who live in Jerusalem. Last night they had a, you know, explosion where a 16-year-old yeshiva student was killed. So, you know, I've gotten a little bit better understanding that some things, you know, are just pure evil. And, you know, you're never going to really understand. It doesn't mean you can't be angry. So when I grew up, you know, I was angry at the fact that, you know, my bar mitzvah, for example, the one of grandparents today, you know, I've got grandchildren who are uh, being bar mitzvahed and my wife and I are there and, you know, we take it for granted. And I always, if I'm asked to speak, I always mention the fact that don't take us for granted because there was a time when uh, having grandparents at a family celebration was just not, you know, an option. And, you know, I, my mother's uh, parents They committed no crime and they were brutally tortured and murdered simply because they were Jews. So being an advocate sort of came naturally to me. And I don't want to equate the two because, you know, obviously being an advocate for someone who's accused of a crime is different than, you know, being an advocate for someone who's just being murdered because they were Jews. So... I don't equate the two, but, you know, in my professional life, it's me against the government. You know, and it's sometimes not a fair fight because the government comes into the case with some degree of clout, because I think most people don't really understand the presumption of innocence. I think they come in with the understanding that, you know, the person on trial did not get picked out of the Yellow Pages for the distinction of being indicted. And, you know, one of the things I like to say in my opening statements is that, you know, the people at this table call themselves the government. And when they stand up, the court will say the government call its next witness. But just keep in mind, they're not the government. You're part of the government. I'm part of the government. My client's part of the government. So the fact that they call themselves the government is not something that you can give you know any weight to whatsoever. The people at this table are nice, clean-cut advocates, and their job is to try and win. And, you know, I'm trying to keep that from happening. So it's an interesting dynamic when your adversary is always either the people of the state of New York or the United States of America. When you think about it in a civil litigation or commercial litigation, there are two sides and the rules are a lot different. In a criminal case, there really aren't two sides. Uh, There is the government and me. And, you know, sometimes I'm the only person standing between the government and my client. And it's sometimes a daunting task to stand up and make sure the jury really understands the presumption of innocence, even if they come into the courtroom with a preconceived notion that the person on trial must have done something wrong or they wouldn't be sitting in the well of the courtroom being called a defendant. Would it be accurate that you identify as an underdog? I think we're all underdogs when you're a criminal defense lawyer. Do I myself identify as an underdog? I try not to. I try to make certain that the jury likes me. I think most people who are honest and they talk about whatever talent I may have as a trial lawyer, I think part of the objective is getting the jurors to like you and listen to you. In the cases, you know, where jurors have said not guilty, I've really turned these people into uh, advocates for my client, you know, even in a case where uh, someone is convicted. I mean, you know, the Shkreli case, which was maybe one of the most complicated cases I have ever tried. I mean, we got five out of the eight counts acquittals. And I think I'm more proud of that verdict than of any acquittal I've ever had, because, you know, Shkreli came into that case as the most hated person in the world. I know they say America, but I think it was the world. And to get jurors to understand the person, to, you know, feel some degree of not necessarily compassion, but to give him a fair trial, to have him found not guilty of five, I think, out of the eight counts was quite remarkable. And they were the most serious counts. They were the money counts, if you will. And, you know, under the guidelines, if he had just kept his mouth shut at the end of the case, I think we may have gotten a one-year sentence, a year and a day, maybe 18 months. But we really turned the judge around to the point where after the verdict, she, you know, wished him good luck. And then much to, you know, my dismay, he got involved in a threat to Hillary Clinton and, you know, the government moved to remand him. And I think the judge felt that he had crossed the line and that changed everything. You know, he ended up with a seven-year sentence and it Changed his uh, classification at the Bureau of Prisons. So, where he was eligible for a camp designation, he suddenly went to, you know, a real jail. Now, he's just been released, but, you know, I've often said that Shkreli was a client who there were days when I wanted to hug him and there were days when I wanted to punch him in the face. When he got remanded, that was one of the days where I wanted to punch him in the face. Seemed to me like
0: he's someone you saw the good in, even amidst all the bad.
1: He's probably the single most brilliant person I've ever represented. You know, we had, I think, a million pieces of discovery in that case. And when we were looking for a particular exhibit, you know, you would say to Shkreli, I need an email for July in the year in question. And he would say, look at the exhibit, you know, 2011. And that would be it. So, you know, he had a photographic memory. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. But he was a strange kid. You know, I summed up in that case where I mentioned, you know, the Lady Gaga song where I said, you know, what do we want me to tell you? He was born that way. He had a lot of idiosyncrasies that if not explained that way. I think, you know, jurors maybe would have said he's being disrespectful because there were times when he would laugh and there was nothing funny. He would play with his hair. He would be focused on, a, you know, at times on an organic chemistry textbook that he would read throughout some of the most important parts of the case. So, uh, you know, I don't want to get started, but, you know, it was frustrating. But also, you know, he had a lot of endearing qualities. What can I tell you? Let's try to go behind the curtain
0: a little bit on Ben Braffman as a lawyer, and we can use the Martin Screlly case as an example. But here's the question. Do you use jury consultants?
1: I didn't. And to be honest with you, I know this is going to rankle every jury consultant who listens to this. And maybe, you know, for some cases, they play an important role. But, you know, my uh, interest in picking a fair jury has been me. You know, I like to believe that the juror I'm going to select is someone who, if we met under different circumstances, would enjoy having a cup of coffee with me and we would find a lot of things to discuss. And, you know, so far, my seat of the pants instincts in picking jurors have been uh, fairly good. And, you know, I've had cases where the client insisted on the jury consultants and, you know, without naming names. You know, I had some of my uh, most difficult battles, if you will, with jury consultants who I really disagreed with. And, you know, depending on the client, more often than not, they went with my instincts. And in some of the most celebrated acquittals I've ever had, there was no jury consultant. And in one or two where there was a jury consultant at the insistence of the client over my objection, it's often the case where I fought very hard. Who gets the most input
0: into trial strategy with you outside of the client and you? In other words, is there someone on your team, a co-counsel, a paralegal, a consultant? I'm wondering, who do you give access to you to help shape strategy?
1: You know, early on when I was trying these cases alone, because I was, you know, starting out and I didn't really have a staff, it was me on occasion, the client. In later years, as I've tried cases with others, I've listened. I have a reasonably good team of lawyers here. And in the Shkreli case, you know, four of us tried a case together. And, you know, there it was sort of a team decision. In a couple of instances, you know, I still get to pull rank, but I play nicely with others, you know, in terms of co-counsel. You know, I almost published an article that I wrote but never published, but it was, you know, friendly fire, my biggest concern. And that is, you know, you're trying a case with a number of lawyers, some of whom you never worked with. Some had, you know, limited experience and maybe not up to the task or doesn't want to put in the work. And, you know, sometimes it was uh, problematic. I didn't like it. I like working alone for the most part, not with co-counsel. To the generation that might
0: say, well, maybe you don't always need hard work if you work smarter, not faster, more creatively, what's your thoughts? Do you see any way in the practice of trial law that there's a end around hard work? I don't
1: think so. You know, I've thought about that a lot because every time I say that to a group, you know, They say, well, you know, with today's technology, you don't need to spend 12 hours preparing for a cross because you can push a button and all of this stuff. And I said to them, you're right, but you're not going to get the computer to do the cross. And you're not going to get the computer to uh, help you. when the client, when the witness just veers away from uh, the topic and you need to push them back. And the only way you get to do that effectively is if you know everything. So, you know, you're talking to what I characterize as, you know, a dinosaur you know, I can do certain things that require, you know, technology, and then I can operate an iPhone and a desktop. But, you know, I like the old fashioned way. I mean, I like people to print everything for me. And I like to be able to, you know, read it and study it and not always off of a device or a screen. I like the hard uh, copy and I like to underline and make notes. And I just don't feel doing it on a laptop is the same. And I have seen that in living color in a courtroom where, you know, People with brilliant technology skills can't get out of their own way when they get up on their feet. So maybe it's, you know, me, maybe it's, you know, some degree of talent. But my way is, you know, just understand the case, everything about the case. And, you know, the minute you lose your credibility with a court or a jury, I mean, you just end up losing.
0: Have you had a a moment, as I think most of us have, where for some reason we said something that didn't turn out to be true, but we feel like we lost some credibility with a jury unintentionally, but we still saw it happen? Have you had that happen to you?
1: Yeah, but I think when that happens, it's really not me, you know, intentionally trying to lie. I don't think I've ever done that. But there are times where I've said something, which was my reaction to a piece of evidence where, you know, the government got up in rebuttal or an estimation and sort of stuck it to me. But, you know, that also is somewhat of a gift where, you know, like you can say to a juror, you know, look, I wasn't there. I didn't see this. But based on the evidence in this case, this is my understanding of what you can conclude happened. You know, there your bullet proof Because if they get up and say, well, that may be Mr. Braffman's understanding, but let me tell you our understanding. Sometimes, you know, you get one between the eyes. But I think, you know, in time when you have a lot of experience, I think that happens rarely. And I also think depending how you say it may get you admonished in front of the jury by a judge. Or it may be that in rebuttal they, uh, you know, stick it to you, and a lot depends on what you say, how you say it, and that is, you know, sometimes the way out. I mean, look, I've had cases, and I'm sure you have too, Dave. I've had cases where someone decides to go to trial against your advice. You just want to make certain that they understand. And I've had cases where, you know, the plea offer is, you know, twenty years, and you know, if you get convicted, maybe you get that much. So I I don't see this the upside of pleading guilty. There are also clients who say, um, You know, I don't want to plead guilty because if I get convicted, I can at least look at my kids and say, look, you know, what can I tell you? I got convicted, but I'm really not guilty. And, you know, sometimes that's important. And I will also tell you that one of the cases I think that I'm also most proud of it uh, was called the Blue Thunder case. It was, uh, you know, a heroin conspiracy. And while I've never tried too many drug cases and I don't try a lot of organized crime cases because I just don't want to be pigeonholed and the bulk of my practice is white collar criminal law you know about 20 years ago I was representing someone at the time was someone who was pretty much involved in gambling in the Bronx and you know a number of hispanic guys up in the Bronx had been you know doing a you know notorious open heroin distribution they had gambled with him they had lost they were then ripped off uh, on a drug deal and you know he's now on tape trying to convince these people how to go about getting their money back and you know as a result of those conversations the government put him into the middle of a heroin conspiracy and, you know, he denied being involved. There were some conversations that were clearly gambling related. and not heroin related. And, you know, everybody tried to make a deal, a collective deal. And they offered my client a 20 year plea and he wanted 10 years and he wanted 10 years because, you know, it would give him a window when he would one day be released and he would have life again. 20 years, I think he would consider that a life sentence and there were nine other defendants. So the whole plea arrangement fell apart because of my client. He would not take 20 years under any circumstances. And everybody else who wanted 20 years was so guilty that they would have gotten life if they went to trial and got convicted. And everybody went to trial because of my client. And at the end of the case, my client was acquitted. And it was a bold defense strategy because um, I ended up calling the case agent who vouched for all of these tapes as a witness for the defense. It was some really good lawyering because under the rules of evidence, you know, if the government offers a tape against you, it comes in as an admission against penal interest. If you try and offer that tape, it doesn't come in because it's hearsay. You know, we argued that since the government was using all of these tapes as co-conspirator statements against my client, even if he wasn't on the tape under Rule 806 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, you can put in a prior inconsistent statement to rebut the government's theory. And my argument was, you know, these tapes and the government made all of them. I can offer them because they show my client was running a gambling operation. And, you know, Judge Cram, who's, you know, no longer alive and certainly was not a fan of the defense in the Southern District, she approved it. I called a case agent. I put in, you know, a couple of dozen tapes through him, and you know, he was an honest guy and just said, Yeah, that's one of the tapes I recorded. And they were clearly gambling tapes. I played those tapes in summation and I looked at the jurors and I said This is not a drug tape. These guys were gambling with my client and they found him not guilty. So it was a great result. And, you know, the whole case went to trial because of my client not wanting a 20 year plea and he got acquitted. In my experience, uh, we learn a lot from
0: low moments. I'd like to start in the courtroom and what you learned from it.
1: Well, you know, a couple of cases where my client was uh, found guilty, you know, in those moments, I think you realize a couple of things. One, you can't win every trial. And I think that's something I think really good criminal defense lawyers uh, learn. And, you know, I like to think that my record of acquittals is just very good because if the government wins 90% of their trials and you win, you know, 80, 85% of your trials, I think that's really good. But every verdict where someone gets uh, convicted sort of breaks your heart a little bit. And, you know, there's no reward sometimes for excellence. You either win or you lose. But, you know, there's very rare that someone who gets convicted pats you on the back and says, you know, I, uh, you did a great job. Thank you. Well, that has happened on occasion. It's, you know, two days later, they get someone else who says, we'll look at the record and we'll try and see if you have any ineffective assistance of counsel issues. But, you know, I tell you the truth, one of the lowest points of my professional life was having a sentence of imprisonment imposed by a very, very tough judge who, um, you know, just ignored what I said, what the government said. It was a defendant who had cooperated. His cooperation resulted in the whole case imploding. The government gave him credit for that. And the judge, you know, gave him a couple of years in jail, which was more than people got who didn't cooperate. And, you know, I was kind of stunned and broke my heart. I had a defendant who was dying and was involved in a massive insurance fraud, and he pled guilty to it. And my argument was, uh, judge, just spare him the indignity of dying in prison. If you sentence him to prison and you put him in today, you know, I don't think he's going to make it. So if you can't give him a non-jail sentence, at least give him six months or a year to surrender because the doctors have not given him that long to live. And, you know, the judge just ignored me sentenced him to three years and remanded him. Six weeks later, he died. So those are moments that I felt particularly low, but you know, it's a tough profession. What do you do to stay positive or filled with hope? Well, I think if you're not an optimist, you really shouldn't be in this profession. And I think if you want to be a criminal defense lawyer, you're never going to pitch a perfect game every day. And sometimes when you pitch a perfect game and it doesn't go well, I think most cases are decided on the facts. You know, I'm looking at a picture of me and Bill Taylor, who was co-counsel, walking out of the courthouse with Dominic Strauss-Kahn. You know, that was maybe the highest profile case I had ever been involved in. And, uh, you know, we got the indictment dismissed. You know, that was a case that got an enormous amount of publicity. Uh, You know, he was on the way to becoming the president of France. He was arrested on a plane, you know, leaving the country for reasons having nothing to do with the case. And, you know, it was a terrible ordeal to get that case dismissed because the grand jury had already indicted him. Bill Taylor and I managed to convince Cy Vance, who was then the district attorney of New York County, that he was going to lose this case because the complainant by that time had zero credibility. And he, uh, you know, dismissed the indictment. That sort of made it all worthwhile. If you had to summarize your theory or your methodology on trial law, what would it be? I think I go back to being the single most prepared lawyer in the courtroom, understanding who the judge was and how he or she is going to run their courtroom. Try and not to get into it with the judge, certainly not in the presence of the jury. And when you have to get into it, you know, you really don't have to throw bombs and hand grenades. I think you need to maintain a respectful dialogue and, you know, they're the judge and you're not. And sometimes you have a judge who is, you know, predetermined to convict the defendant, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for no reason, other than the fact that the U.S. attorney or the district attorney thinks, uh, you know, it's a bad person. So I think being the most prepared person in the courtroom is uh, rule number one. I think when you get to rule number two, you know, you got to look at rule number one, because if you're not the most prepared person in the courtroom, you really should not be trying the case. The other thing is that jurors need to like you or at least be liking you enough so they're willing to listen to you, that you don't want them to fold their arms and to glower at you. And I think when you lose your credibility in a courtroom with either the judge or the jury, you don't get it back. And I've seen, you know, lawyers make really stupid arguments that jurors have sort of rolled their eyes. And I think one of the criticisms I have of trial lawyers is that they don't listen, they don't watch, and, you know, they don't realize what they're saying sometimes. You know, that's why I like trying cases alone without a co-defendant. But there are trials which, you know, you can't win. And I think you need to show up and, you know, give the same effort each day. And um, I'll tell you, one of the most difficult moments I've ever had was when I uh, advised Peter Gation. And Peter Gation at the time was the king of uh, clubs. He owned the Limelight, Club USA, the Tunnel, and the Palladium. And, you know, he was the guy. He ran four of the biggest, hottest clubs in New York. And then Mayor Rudy Giuliani decided they were going to put an end to Club World. And, you know, he was indicted, charged with running a racketeering enterprise Well, you know, it was then one of the hottest trials in New York. Went for eight weeks. A jury found him not guilty after just a couple of hours of deliberation. But a couple of days before the summation, one of the last witnesses called by the government was just a vile, detestable human being. And, you know, I could have cross-examined him effectively in a coma. But, you know, I wasn't in a coma and I did maybe one of my finest cross-examinations. And he was like just a shredded pool of liquid by the end of the cross-examinations. And we had interviewed 29 witnesses as defense witnesses, and we were ready to call them as witnesses. And It's too complicated to explain what they were going to say and why it was important. But I looked at Peter and I said, I don't think we should put on a defense case. I think we should rest and go to the jury. It will catch the government off guard. And you're never going to be in a better position than we are now. And if one of our witnesses just implodes or doesn't come across well, that's the way the jury is going to remember our case. Whereas now I think they hate the government's case and the government witnesses. And he looked at me and he said, you know, well, Ben, we had investigators, find 29 people, interview them. You agreed to call them. And he said, Peter, this is my recommendation. If I win this case, you're going to think it was brilliant. If I lose this case, you're going to go somewhere. And every lawyer who is want to take a swing at me is going to say, you know, that may have been a bold move, but it turned out to be the wrong move. He said, Ben, so far, you know, I've watched you work. You're in charge. That's your feeling. Let's go with it. So you know, we notified the court that we were not putting on a defense case. And, you know, the night before summations, I remember walking around my home petrified, you know, it was the scariest decisions I've ever made. And I knew all night long, which was why I couldn't sleep that, you know, this guy got convicted, I would never hear the end of this. And, you know, the jury found him not guilty, I turned into, you know, a genius. But I know, and he knows, and everybody else knows that if he got convicted, I think he would have been sentenced to 11 years is my recollection. And for every day of those 11 years, he would have been filing brief after brief after brief, you know, criticizing, you know, my decision. So... Sometimes, you know, take a wild swing and you hit a home run and sometimes, you know, you strike out. And, you know, I'm I reminded of, you know, this last Yankees uh, playoff season, you know, Aaron Judge who was, you know, hit the most home runs of anyone in the history of baseball and, you know, when he kept striking out in the playoffs, the Yankee fans were booing him. And I'm saying to myself, have they forgotten the kind of season he gave them? And I'm not a Yankee fan, but still I was startled and I kept thinking about that's my life. If I screw up, even if I try a brilliant case and everything works perfectly, last thing uh, they remember is that they were found guilty. So it's really a tough business. And yet you've chosen to dedicate your whole life to it. Well, you know, it didn't start out that way. I mean, I, uh, I went to work for McGuire and Lawler, who were, you know, at the time, maybe the hottest two white collar criminal defense lawyers in New York. I watched them, and I really felt like I could do it. And, you know, I went to the Manhattan DA's office under Bob Morgenthau, and, you know, I tried case after case there, and it got into my blood. And when I left there, you know, I had job offers from a number of big white-shoe firms because they had seen me work, and they wanted me. And I was making, I think, $15,000 $15, a year, and I was being offered 125000 immediately. And you know, to be honest with you, this is you know, 42 years ago. I didn't know anybody who was making $100,000 a year. That was like making $10 million today. And I turned them down. And I said to my wife, "Let me try this for six months. If it doesn't work, those job offers will still be there." And if it does work, you know, maybe I'll be happier. And 1980, I opened my own firm and, you know, in 1982, we bought a new house. And, you know, I had never lived in a private home, either as a kid or in my uh, adult life. So it, you know, did well. It took off and, you know, I've never looked back. So... If you're asking me that I think one day when I was growing up that I would be here today at this point being considered one of the most successful criminal defense lawyers in New York and maybe even the country, the answer is not. never occurred to me that I could do that.
0: Hmm. I feel like I need to ask you some questions about taking unpopular positions and specifically If I think of your speaking out related to your representation of Harvey Weinstein and just a number of other what seem to be, you know, in the bigger population, you taking what could be perceived as, you know, unpopular positions. How do you keep from allowing that to shape you in negative ways when we all need
1: affirmation too? And clearly we all like to be liked. How do you wrestle through that tension? Well, I'll tell you, the Weinstein case was an interesting experience. First of all, you know, and I hate to say this with the benefit of hindsight, I think that case was a case that could be won. And it's not because I think the women were lying, but, you know, I fought for uh, three months in the bankruptcy court in Delaware to get access to his emails, and the emails were a treasure trove. And I think, you know, look, I don't know the lawyer who represented him. I met her once. And, you know, what I didn't like about her was she wasn't from New York and she was, you know, a tough woman from Chicago. And I thought to myself, that's not the right personality in the courtroom. And, you know, Harvey Weinstein was maybe one of the most complicated men that I had ever met. And we had some long conversations together, not just about the case and about his, you know exploits. But, you know, at the end of the day, he was maybe one of the most fascinating people I've ever had long conversations with because, you know, he was, you know, Harvey Weinstein, who had produced some of my uh, favorite movies. And I was in a conference room talking to him, just me and him. But, you know, it got to a point where, you know, because at one point he said to me, Ben, I'm being told that I have to have a skirt in the courtroom. And I said, you know, Harvey, I can do a lot of things for you, but I'm not going to become a woman. So if that's what you want, then maybe we should part ways. And, you know, at that point, I think our relationship ruptured because, you know, I have always wanted to keep control of every case where I was the quarterback. And, you know, Harvey was getting advice from so many other people. I also started to understand that, you know, Harvey was Harvey. And, you know, I said to him, if you get convicted here, you're going to be remanded. You know, he never believed that. And then he was and he was. But, you know, I represented a guy about 30 years ago who was charged with actually murdering uh, 70 people. I mean, he was charged with killing them, but he also dismembered them. And, you know, it got some press and I would walk down the street and people would come up to me and say, I really wish you good luck. You know, I represented Harvey Weinstein for a couple of months and people would come up to me on the street and says, you know, I hope you die. So (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, Whoa. Times have changed. And, you know, here's a guy from Hollywood who's, you know, accused of being a, you know, a womanizer. And I get the outrage, but the guy who murdered and dismembered, I'm doing a great job representing Harvey, you know, was suddenly a sin. So, you know, leaving the Harvey Weinstein case was very complicated, was a very, very tough decision. I think at the end of the day, why I made the decision uh, for a number of reasons and some I can talk about, some I really can't. But I need to understand that very often my client is going to be someone most of the civilized world, including members of my own family, you know, sometimes look at them and they say to themselves, you know, how can you justify helping them? And I think the things that my kids understand and my wife certainly understands, and you know, some of my closest confidants I said, you know, when the government does things right, I mean they generally win. When the government reaches or overcharges or uh, you know, just paints with the broad brush, you know, it's my job to keep them honest. And when I do and the case falls apart, you know, and they find a the person not guilty it's you know for good reason and i think to be honest with you every time i've gotten an acquittal in a case where you know maybe the person is charged with doing something wrong i think i can uh, point to something very important as to why they got an acquittal when you look back
0: on your career what do you think is most misunderstood about ben brathman
1: I think there are a couple of things. One, you know, I think I've come to be recognized as someone who speaks well. And I think most people recognize that, you know, maybe my personality is good for trial work and I'm good on my feet. But that only gets you so far. You know, I circle back again and again and again. There are just no shortcuts. And I think what most people don't understand, and it's unfortunate, and I don't think they ever will understand, I don't think they really understand how really hard I have worked for the last 40 years. You know, I'm not certain it gets any better. I mean, I'm going to go to trial at the end of January in a case where, you know, we've been wrestling with the fact that there doesn't appear to be a defense that jumps off the pages at you. But, you know, I have a client who has decided he wants a trial. And we're going to give him a trial. And, you know, who knows what will happen. But one of the things I understand, and so do the people who are working with me on the case, is I'm not certain he gets a worse sentence after the case than he would on a plea, which, you know, sometimes is a dispositive factor. So, you know, we're going to trial in a case where the odds are not on our side. But I don't think they've ever been on my side in any trial. So
0: knowing one of your hobbies is to read, what is the best book you're currently reading?
1: Well, I just finished a book, which I think is maybe one of the best books I've ever read. And that is Tomorrow, Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I don't remember the author, but it's about you know two really young people who are geniuses in the gaming industry. I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it, but if you read it, you'll be impressed and hopefully you'll share my opinion. The other book that I I recently read that I think is just so good is a book by Stephen King. And, you know, it's not a horror, scary type book because I don't like that. But there's a book called Billy Summers, and it's about a professional hitman who um, wants to do one more job, and he's rationalized his conduct over his life because he only kills people who in his own mind, uh, you know, are worth killing or who deserve to die. It's just a great story, especially for someone with my uh, sort of professional life. Last question, happiest moment in your life? if you're asking about the happiest moment it's somewhere in my family and i think that's the way you know it should be i'm married i have two really great children i have a number of uh, grandchildren and now i have a a great grandchild um, i had a brother who died five years ago and i built a school in his name in israel that now has you know 300 students and you know a couple of years ago you know i fell and almost died had a miraculous recovery you know, they honored me at the dinner in Israel, and uh, it was a very, very happy, touching moment. But I can't really put my finger on either a happiest personal moment or the happiest professional moment. I feel lucky in that regard. I said last question, but I'm going to ask
0: one more. 50-year marriage, other than the traditional thing that it seems like lots of men say, which is, You know, listen to her when I ask what's the best piece of marriage advice. If you were to give one real piece of marriage advice with a 50 year marriage, what would it be?
1: Give each other uh, the space that they need. In particular, you know, my wife, who is, uh, you know, really smart, understands the nature of my work, you know, recognizes that it takes a great deal of preparation and effort. And I'll tell you that, you know, early on in my life, you know, I would stay in the office till you know midnight. and then you know, as the kids were you know starting to become people, I would you know pack up my stuff and I would go home, you know, I would have dinner and I would you know play with the kids, talk to my wife, and then I would work from home. and I have a table in my kitchen, which is, I would say it's you know, eight feet long and five feet wide. And that's where I would do my work, and I did it for a couple of reasons. One, it was really quiet, and I needed quiet. And in my office, you know, even at midnight, there was always stuff to annoy me. And second, I really wanted the kids to understand that, you know, what I did uh, really required an enormous effort. And they sometimes, you know, would come down middle of the night to get something to eat or get a glass of water. And I'd be in the kitchen with giant notebooks and tape recorders and earphones, and I would be preparing for the next day. And they would sit down and look at all this stuff and ask me about the case. And I think growing up, they were very, very impressed with the work ethic that was involved. And, you know, I also liked the fact that I was home. I think that was very, very important. But, you know, I think for a 50-year marriage or 52 years now, I think it was um, giving each other a space and realizing that, you know, we're different in many ways, but we're also, you know, very similar in some ways. And, you know, my wife is a very, very smart woman who is, you know, in many ways smarter than uh, I am. And it's good. It's okay. She's a, a good person.
0: Well, uh, Ben, I really appreciate your time and your openness. I appreciate the reminder of there are no shortcuts and the value of hard work. I, I love it. Thanks again. I enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.